All right. Let me start by asking you a question. How big is your faith? Do you actually believe that God can do the impossible? Or would you say there, if you really dug into it, are there constraints on what you believe God can do? I think this is actually a really important question. Uh, And it's not just an intellectual exercise, because at some point, for all of us, this question gets really real. Like, let me give you a couple examples of this. You know, let's say your marriage just feels like it's an absolute shambles. Do you believe that God can save it? Or can God heal your family member in sickness? Uh, Can God take you out of the depths of a pain or depression that you feel stuck in? What can God do? Can God do the impossible? And where and when can he do it? And I really want us to sort of dive into those questions as we continue in our series on the life of Elijah this morning. So this is a summer series that we started uh, just last week. So if you missed last week or this is your very first time at Renovation Church, uh, you can catch up uh, online or on our app or any sorts of many different podcast uh, platforms. But I'll just give you like a quick minute or two overview on what you missed. So we're studying Elijah the prophet from the Old Testament. So he lived, you know, roughly eight, nine hundred years before Jesus came to earth. And he lived in Israel. And so last week we talked about who was in power at that time. And it was King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And they were not nice folks. In fact, they had led the people of Israel away from worshiping the one true God to start worshiping false gods and false goddesses. And so Elijah, he confronts them. He says, here, listen, here's the deal. The Lord said this to me. Because of what you're doing, it's not going to rain in Israel for years, which was actually quite ironic because the main god that Ahab and Jezebel had the people worshiping was this false god called Baal, whose main function was to make it rain, if you will. And God says, well, just, I'll just show you who's really real. It's not going to rain for a few years. And so Elijah confronts the king and the queen, and then God whisks him away off to this brook where he can hide, and also God begins training him for the next season of his life. So we're going to join the story there. Uh, Everybody, if you would, at this point, grab a Bible. This is what we do here. So there's a Bible in front of every chair. Uh, Many of you bring your own, or you use your phone. However you just sort of normally engage with the Bible, that's a great way to do it. Um, And so we're going to be on page 243, but we want you looking at God's Word. This is what we do here. Uh, I don't stand up on stage and give you my opinions for 30 minutes and then tack on some semi-related Bible verses at the end. Uh, We study God's Word, and then we try and put our life under the authority of it. Okay, so page 243, we're on 1 Kings chapter 17, so you're going to look for that big 17, and find the little number 7, and that just means we're at verse 7, because we left off at uh, verse 6 last week. Okay. Here's what it says. It says, Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. So, Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread? As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Because remember, there's a severe famine going on. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. 
Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Okay, let's uh, pause there for a little while. All right, this is a passage about provision. God is going to show us, really all throughout chapter 17 here, that he can provide anywhere, anytime. And so, if God can provide anywhere, which is really sort of our, our first point this morning, let's talk about location here. Because we read that God has finally allowed this drought to take its toll on this brook at the Kareth, the Kareth Brook, the, the cutting ravine, as we talked about last week, to dry up the water. And so he commands Elijah, I want you to go to this town and find a widow who's going to supply you with food. Now, if you just read it through, and I've read it through like this a lot of times, you just read a town name, and so you kind of think in your head, okay, well, go like next door into town. Like you would think if you were getting water at Coon Creek in Ham Lake, like it's, it feels like he's saying, now head into Blaine and get some food, but it's actually not that at all. In fact, I brought a map for you today, which is really exciting, uh, and so check this out. Thank you. Finally, some enthusiasm over here. I don't know what's happening, you guys, over here. Okay, I'm going to do the laser over here for these guys. Okay, I'm just kidding. Okay. No, seriously, I am. Okay, now, okay, so this is the Sea of Galilee. Here's the Jordan River. Um, the brook is somewhere, scholars think, over here. So it's Kareth. I know it's a little hard to read if you're in the back. But he's told to go all the way up to Zarephath. Now, in context, just ge- geographically here, we don't know the exact route, but this is probably the most likely route. This is somewhere between 80 to 100 miles away. God doesn't say just go to the next town. He sends them to a specific town 80 to 100 miles away. What we don't know yet, and you're going to find this out uh, as we get into the next chapter, Elijah is actually the most wanted man in Israel at this point. King Ahab and Jezebel, they're looking for him. So think about this. He's walking in the hot sun in a drought, basically like Minnesota right now, so just kind of think of that, right? 80 to 100 miles while he's the most wanted man in the whole area. And what's also really interesting, you see this kind of orangish, tannish color, that's a that's the technical term right here. This is the border of Israel. And so look at this. God sends him to a town that's not even in Israel. A Zarephath is actually in modern-day Lebanon. And so what is God doing? He sends him way up here. Now, can you read this? I don't know if you can read this town right here. This is the town of Sidon. In fact, this whole region right up here was the region of the Sidonians. Now, this was kind of a footnote. It was a real small note when we studied last week. But Queen Jezebel, this wicked queen, before she married King Ahab, chapter 16 tells us that she was essentially the princess of the Sidonians. And it was Jezebel who brought this worship of Baal, this rain god, that was her local god, into Israel. So God sends Elijah on this incredibly difficult journey where he's the most wanted man in this hot, drought times all the way up to basically the backyard of Jezebel where the worship of Baal actually began because God is proving that he can provide absolutely anywhere. 
Think about this. Now imagine that you're Elijah, and you hear God starting to say, okay, now I'm, I'm going to get you some food now. And you start conjecturing in your head how it's all going to go down. Now you're probably thinking, oh, I bet he's going to send me down to like Jerusalem or something. Maybe there's some rich, wealthy guy there that can kind of, you know, provide some, some food for me. But think about this. God sends him to a total outsider. This woman is probably like 99th on a list of 99 ideas he has for how he's going to get fed. And think about it. Every single category is not what you would expect. So first of all, she's a woman in a time where men had complete power, right? She's poor, not rich. She's hungry. She's about getting ready to die. She's a widow. She's not married. And she doesn't even know the one true God. I mean, look at verse 12, if you have it in front of you. What does she say to him? She says, the Lord, your God. She doesn't even know God. Meanwhile, God, through this whole journey, is thinking, you know what, this just isn't a problem for me. It's not a problem for me. I'm teaching Elijah, and I'm showing you all today that I can provide for you absolutely anywhere. You only have a handful of flour? You just have a drop of oil? It's no problem for me. I can provide anywhere. There's not a scenario that you can imagine in which it's too difficult for God to provide. God is with Elijah. When I read this, it it brings to mind uh, Psalm 23, which is a a classic psalm from the Old Testament. Psalm 23, verses 4 and 5 read like this. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, we used to say, through the valley of the shadow of death, right? At least that's what every uh, 90s rapper said. I'm sure they got that from the King James Version. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's what God can do. Speaking of this psalm, I uh, recently just finished a really good book I recommend to you called Evidence Not Seen. This is incredible true story of a female missionary uh, in Indonesia during World War II. She gets uh, captured by the Japanese and she's put in a prisoner of war camp. And there's a part in the book where they have her locked up in this especially difficult prisoner of war camp. And she's just, her body is just wasting away. One day she's in her kind of cell in the sort of isolation ward and she's able to kind of stand up and look out the window and she sees someone outside sneak a banana kind of like through this hedge to a woman who's out in the courtyard. Now they didn't even let her out in the courtyard but she kind of sees what's happening. This woman kind of grabs a banana from someone who's snuck it in and she begins to pray in her cell and she prays, Lord, could you get me a banana? Just one banana. Lord, I am I'm literally dying. I'm wasting away. They gave her just like a tiny, minuscule portion of rice once a day. And that was it. So her body is wasting away. She goes, God, could you just could you give me a banana? And she said, as soon as I finished praying, I just felt like foolish. Like, why am I even praying? It's literally impossible for someone to get me a banana in here. And even if one of the guards or somebody risked it, you know, or a night watchman, they would, they would kill him for it. So why am I even praying this? Well, a few days later, this high-ranking Japanese officer comes to this camp. Now, this is a man that months earlier, earlier on in the book, that she had sort of risked her life, and she had shared about Jesus with to this Japanese official. Well, this officer, he comes to herself, because apparently his words had meant, her words had meant something to him, and he knocks on her cell door, the door opens, and he gives her, guess what? Not just a banana, but he brings 92 bananas to her cell and drops them in. 
And she said, when that happened, I dropped to my knees, and immediately the Lord brought a scripture verse to my mind. And it was the scripture verse we just read, Psalm 23, 5, that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That that's what God can do. That God can provide absolutely anywhere. In a prison of war camp, in the home region of Baal, absolutely anywhere God can provide. God loves to do stuff like that. And so I, w- I would say to you this morning, if you're in a place right now in your life where you feel like it, no, it just isn't possible for God to provide in a situation like this, I assure you that those are actually some of God's favorite places to provide. Trust him. Cry out to God in faith again this week. Just be honest with him. I mean, the, the, the Bible encourages honesty. Come to him and say, Lord, here's the deal. I feel like I've got a handful of flour. I feel like I've got a drop of oil. That's all I got. But God, I just need you to move. Because I believe you can do anything, anywhere. Lord, fix my marriage again. Pray like he can do it. Lord, bring my son to faith. Lord, help me get out of this addiction and just into recovery, Lord, be with me. I'm asking you to believe again that God can do anything, because that's who he is. He is a God that can provide anywhere, and he's also a God that can provide any time, which is our second point that sort of leads us to the second part of the passage. So if you have the Bible, open it back up again, and we are still 1 Kings chapter 17. Now we're going to move on to verse 17. Here's what it says. Sometime later... The son of the woman who owned the house became ill. So these are the same two people. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow with I am, widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out of the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So you think about this woman. This woman experiences what many people say is the worst pain you can possibly experience while you're on earth, and that is the death of a child. It's like her hopes in God had been rising, but then it just feels like the hope is just sucked right out of her life. And some of you have experienced pain like that, where you feel like your life is going in a direction, and a tragedy strikes or something happens, and it feels like your hope just goes dead. And yet Elijah believes in a God that can do the impossible. Now, I want you to keep something in mind here. This is kind of biblically interesting. This is actually the first account in the entire Bible of someone being resurrected from the dead. So... At this point, at least to our knowledge and probably Elijah's knowledge, it hasn't happened before. So it's not like Elijah can say, Lord, do what you're famous for. Do what you did back with Moses or back with Abraham when they raised someone from the dead. It just hasn't happened. 
So what he's praying is so impossible. It feels so impossible to him and to the widow, and yet he prays. He prays to a God that can do anything, anywhere, anytime, even if it looks like everything is dead and all hope is lost. He believes, and that is the task of the Christian, to have radical faith in a big God. Like If we don't believe that our God can do anything, then it's like, what do we even believe in? I want you to believe again. Now, there's probably some of you in this room that are going, oh, that feels right to me, but there's like a piece of that that feels not completely right or just slightly underdeveloped. Like, isn't there another side of the coin? And you're right, there is. Uh, The Christian faith uh, is, this is not new age, right? This is not witchcraft. Uh, Sometimes people in, in sort of new age religions, they say, if you do A, B, and C, then your output is always D. That's not really what our faith looks like. It's complex, right? Well, think about even this woman and the interaction of her faith and her interaction with God, right? Her own experience. So think about this. She just experienced an absolute miracle of the, of the provision of food, right? And so she starts to believe in God, and right when she starts to believe, her son dies. I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? Unreal. What is going on? And I would say, you know, one of the things we can draw from this is it's just a reminder that life is not clear-cut and predictable. You do not know what your life is going to look like the next 10 years. We don't. Life is not clear-cut and predictable. It's often like this. I think of Abraham in the book of Genesis. God calls him to go to the promised land. He goes on this long, arduous journey. He finally gets to the promised land. He sees it in all of its glory and beauty. And then like shortly there, right thereafter, there's a famine in the promised land. He just has to go to Egypt instead. <laughs> there's a famine in the promised land. And sometimes life feels like that. just like a famine in the promised land. It's complex. But part of the complexity we feel comes out of the fact that we, in part, don't understand fully the ways of God. Isaiah in the Old Testament says God's ways are higher than our ways, than our understanding. And we have to trust that... Well, I'll just ask you the question. Was God in control when the widow miraculously had food provided for her? Yes, right? We also still have to believe that God was in control even when her son passed away. We have to be willing to let go of telling God that we know what's best in our story or in someone else's story. Timothy Keller, who's one of the best Christian thinkers alive on this planet right now, uh, says it this way. He says, if you're not willing to have a God who can tell you to do things you don't like, if you're not willing to have a God who can contradict you, if you're not willing to have an untamed God, as C.S. Lewis always said, if you're not willing to have a God who is uncontrollable, then you'll never have a real God. You'll never have a living God. When you've concocted a God in your mind, that God is as dead as if you'd carved it. So how do you reconcile these two things together that we're talking about today. This idea that we as Christians should pray passionately, believing that God can do anything, with this idea that sometimes God's will is not the same as ours. How can you be a passionate Christian and still an intellectually responsible Christian? 
I think one of the best places in Scripture is where you can reconcile this. We can truly have a deeper understanding of this. One of the best places in the Scriptures is Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, so this, this is, you know, uh, five, six hundred years or so before Jesus in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar is about to throw three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. At our house, we always say, uh, at bedtime, Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. Uh, you can try that at your house if you'd like. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, God is about to, or King Nebuchadnezzar is about to throw them in the fire because they have refused to bow down to this massive golden statue that he has built. And as he's about to throw them in the fire, they say this to him, and this is incredibly profound. They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. See, that is to be the faith of the Christian. That even as they are about to throw you into the fire, that you would say, I absolutely believe that God can rescue me right now, and I will pray that he will. But even if he does not, he is still good, and he is still right, and I will follow him. And besides, when I think about who God really is, and what he has already given me in himself, in salvation, in eternal life. No matter what he does, I have already gotten way more than I even deserve. And my friend, I gotta, I gotta tell some of you this. What God did for that boy in this passage, he can do in your life. Because at your death, because we're all, we're all gonna die someday, right? And this is a great thing. We, we, we like to not think about this in America. But you are gonna die someday. And at your death, God can raise you back to life, to eternal life in heaven. But how? You know, that's the most important question that you will ever answer in your entire life. Absolutely. Way more than what should you do or who should you marry. We're talking about where you're going to be for the next trillion years or so, and then some. How does God raise you back to life, to life in eternity? A lot of us, we're afraid of it in this culture. We're afraid of the question, but we don't look into it at the same time. You know, I always find it kind of interesting in America for all of our kind of modern day therapy that we have, all of our stress relievers, all of our smart watches that uh, tell you when to do relaxation breathing because you're really stressed. Humans can't seem to get rid of at least one fear, and that is the fear of death. But I want you to know that the the book that many of you have in your hands, the Bible, teaches that Jesus Christ came to conquer death. And he first conquered death himself. He was killed on a cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he set out to do what his father wanted him to do, which was to die on the cross in your place for your sins. Because our sins deserve some sort of punishment. And I think a lot of us instinctively know this. Even the woman in this passage, right? She goes, isn't my son dying for my sins? Well, no, but there is a punishment. God is a just God. He's a holy God. There should be a natural consequence, punishment, for all of the sins that we've committed, and we've committed many of them. 
But God in his love for you says, I am sending my own son to take the punishment that you deserve on the cross. And the way that we're saved, the way that we're brought back to life is by believing that Jesus died in our place and turning our lives over to him. Because when you do that, then the consequence, the punishment goes from off of you and onto Jesus. So you can be forgiven, so you can be made alive, so you can have a relationship with him. But you've got to make a decision to offer your life up to him. And you see this even in this story. You know, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, it's written all over the scriptures from the beginning to the end. You see it even right here in 1 Kings 17. Just as when Elijah said to that woman, he said, give me your son. That dead body that you're clutching in your arms, give him over to me. Trust God. Trust what God can do. We must do the same. We must do the same. To take our life and acknowledge that if we don't give it up to God, if we don't turn it over to God, it's dead. And it will lead to eternal death, eternal separation from God. But if you turn it over to God, you say, take his dead life of mine. I cannot fix, I cannot raise, I cannot save. Take it, I give it to you. He will bring the Holy Spirit into your life. And he will raise your dead body to life. And you will experience that almost instantaneously of God coming into your life. And you'll experience it at the end of your life by spending eternity raised to life with him. But it's a decision, right? It's a decision to say, God, I believe that you love me so much. You died in my place. You you will forgive me, but I need to turn my life over to you. Take it, God, and he will. And before I step down, I I just, I want to give you an opportunity to even make that decision today. Some of you need to make that decision today. So let's do this. Just for a minute, would you just bow your head and would you just close your eyes? And Christians, I would just ask that you be praying. If you're here, and something's going on inside of you the last couple of minutes, and you're going, I need to, I just need to be done with what I'm doing. I need, to, I need to give God the keys of my life. I need to take my hands off the steering wheel, turn my life over to him. If he loves me that much that he sent Jesus to die for me, I, I want to become his follower. I want to be saved. I want this dead body to be brought to life. If that's you and you want him to save you today, to forgive you today, to come into your life, you can do that and he will. It will radically change your life. If that's you and you need to accept that gift from him today, what I want you to do in just a second here is I want you to actually quietly but just boldly stand up where you're at. Everybody's got their eyes closed and they're not looking at you. It's just a way for you to say, yeah, today. Today is the day that I let him forgive me and save me and I give him my life. If that's you and you've never done this before, what I want you to do is just stand up where you're at right now and give God your life. If that's you, would you just stand? If there's something in your heart and you're just going in your head, I need to do this. I can't keep going my own way. Would you just stand and give him your life? I'll give you about maybe 10 more seconds.
Anyone here that just needs to make that decision today? All right. You know, you can, you can open your eyes. It's, I always tell people, and I know many of you, you're, you're in town here for child dedication, and maybe you're hearing the message of Jesus in a different way today. This isn't a decision that you need to make publicly necessarily. You could make this tonight. You can go home, and you can just kneel by the side of your bed and just say, Lord, I, I believe. I want you to come into my life, and he will. Or maybe for you, it's just beginning to just start the journey of investigating who he is. Uh, we always tell people, take a, if you don't have a Bible, take this Bible with you today. Start reading, maybe in the book of Luke, in the Bible, of reading about Jesus and investigate who he really is. Because I assure you, he loves you, and he died for you. It's pretty amazing. Uh, I got to tell you, too, before I step down, we just had an amazing, powerful salvation in first service today, too, of uh, a woman who, in her low part of her life, just gave her life to the Lord. And that woman was invited by her friend. He just said, you got to come. And just to see the transformation in her eyes and what God's doing, that's just so powerful. And so the rest of you in this room, I would say, there are people in your life that God can absolutely transform their life. And so be a vessel. Let God work through you for that. All right, let me pray, and then we'll have a a final song of worship. Lord, thank you so much uh, that you provide, that there is absolutely no limit at anywhere, at any time, God, that you can provide. We're just in awe of that, and we're just so grateful for that. We love you, and now we just worship you. We worship you not as a small God, but as an absolutely enormously big God. We worship you as the one who can do all things.